Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Technology Uncorked. This show is brought to you by Navman. Now, one particular product that I've been dying to talk to you guys about is the Drive Duo SUV. You've heard about the Drive Duo before with the dash cam and the navigation unit in one. However, with this particular model, it's very well suited to larger vehicles or if you're towing a caravan or a trailer. The reason being, there is a mode called Large Vehicle Assist, and it will make sure that it navigates you down roads that are suitable for towing long, long vehicles or even tall vehicles. This is something that you would miss if you're using things like Google Maps and others. This will make sure you don't get stuck under bridges, that you're not approaching corners that are too hard for the length of the vehicle. An extremely important thing to know if you're going somewhere where you don't exactly know the road ahead. Do check it out from navman.com.au and don't forget you can use a 20% discount code just by typing in uncorked at checkout. Do, do make use of that, save yourself some money, put it towards a nice bottle of wine. Ladies and gentlemen, I could not be more excited to tell you about this show today. Now, it is 100% an interview. I have brought in the Minister of Communications, Cyber Safety and the Arts for the Australian Government. It is Paul Fletcher. Now, this interview does get into things like the NBN. I want to get a bit of background into where it's at today and also where it's going in the future. I did question things around the impact on telecommunications and obviously uh, the NBN from the bushfires that we've just been recovering from. Uh, we talk about five which I think is a very important topic, not just around the safety element, but its competitive advantage. And we also do bring up the elephant in the room, which is Huawei. You know, Huawei has been very uh, vocal about their exclusion from things like the NBN and 5G. So I had to bring it up with the minister as well. At the end of the interview, there is going to be even more questions because there's a certain set of questions that I'm going to ask anybody that I bring on the show. It is more around their day-to-day -day use of technology, getting a bit of an insight into how you know people in these positions uh, function from a tech perspective. I think it's just really interesting to, to learn from them and to see if there's any insights. Maybe it could just be a simple app that we'll hear about and go, huh, maybe I'll start using that. So stay tuned. It is a bit of a long one. It goes for about half an hour. I was extremely privileged to receive so much time from the minister. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, I guess, uh, the Minister of Communications, Cyber Safety and the Arts. Now, Minister, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your day to talk to us. Now, we're getting to a point where the fires in Australia are slowly coming to an end and the rebuilding can really start to be considered. My question here is around how has communication infrastructure been impacted and how long do you think the rebuild could take? Certainly, we have done a lot of work with the telco sector and the communication sector to understand the impact of the bushfires on communication services. So to give one example, uh, after the weekend of 4 and 5 January, which was a very bad bushfire weekend, including uh, Kangaroo Island, across three states, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, uh, a bit over 100 base stations were off the air. That was roughly split 60s, 30, 10 Telstra, Optus, Voda. Uh, you know, roughly in proportion to the penetration of their networks into regional and remote areas. Now, about 80% of those outages were due to loss of power. Base stations will typically have backup power, either battery or diesel generator, and it'll be designed to go somewhere between 3 and 24 hours. Once that runs out, if the diesel runs out, for example, then the, the base station's off the air unless and until you can 
uh, refill the diesel or until the mains power comes back on. Now, we uh, have been tracking very closely on a day-by-day -day basis, working with the industry, um, the return to service of base stations, and that number dropped to 30 or so within a few days. Um, it, it can't, they can't always be brought online immediately because of the difficulties of physically getting access to base stations that are in fire-affected areas, and that's a call for the relevant uh, state emergency organisations. Although certainly once uh, the Commonwealth Government called out the ADF and got people into a lot of the affected areas, they were able to help in getting uh, the telcos access into base stations. So the, um, the, the, the base stations that, were, that went down due to a loss of power, uh, overwhelmingly they're back on air now, but there, are, there were base stations that uh, were physically damaged due to fire. Um, one I had the chance to have a look at was Malua Bay on the south coast of New South Wales. That was a, that's a joint Telstra and Optus base station. Um, both uh, of, their of, their, of their base stations were knocked out, so the fire burnt right up to the, the chain link fence around, um, around the equipment huts there. And in both cases, this, the uh, very expensive communications gear inside the huts was, was completely fried by the um, you know, very high temperatures. Now, in both cases, um, there are temporary um, base stations now operating in Malua Bay, so-called cells on wheels or cows. And that's the case in a number of locations around the country. So we've had two, I guess, strong priorities in looking at the impact of the bushfires. The first was how quickly were services restored? And then secondly, what are the lessons we can learn from this for the future? I convened a round table of the telcos, the chief executives of Telstra, Optus, Vodafone, and NBN attended, as well as the chief operating officer uh, of TPG and we had uh, senior level representation from other companies. We had a very good discussion about some of the immediate actions that could be taken to improve network redundancy. J things like um, asset protection zones around base stations like the one I saw in Malua Bay uh, so that um, fire doesn't come as close to the uh, sensitive electronic equipment as occurred at that base station and some others but also the relationship uh, and the information sharing between the telcos and the state emergency services and, uh, and fire organisations. There are good relationships there, but there may be opportunities to uh, improve the flow of information so that the uh, rural fire service and its equivalent organisations in other states have the latest possible information as to where sensitive communications infrastructure is located so they can use that as they prioritise decisions about areas that they'll defend from fire. And you mentioned the, the cell on wheels, and we did see see that on the news quite a bit, but I also meant, uh, actually saw the deployment of the NBN on wheels, as I, as I tended to call it, where evacuees could gain access to the internet and things like that. I mean, how prepared was the NBN to support that effort? The NBN has done some really important work in responding to this bushfire emergency. Uh, for example, they very quickly moved to put internet connectivity into evacuation centres around the country 
taking advantage of the satellite network and backhaul over the satellite and they then uh, use that to set up internet connectivity and evacuation centres that people could, could access using Wi-Fi on their mobile phone. So it meant if you're in an evacuation centre, you now had connectivity supported by NBN um, and running over the satellite network. Now one of the reasons that's important is because the satellite network is completely physically independent of the terrestrial telecommunications network. So if base stations have been knocked out, if the fixed line network's been knocked out because a fire's gone through an exchange, for example, um, services supported by satellite backhaul will keep operating. So one of the things we've seen in this bushfire emergency is the capacity of the NBN to provide that diversity or redundancy in the telco jargon and to provide connectivity very quickly to people who have great need of it. Another, yeah. another thing that NBN has done is they've got what they call their Roadmaster trucks. So these are utes equipped with a satellite dish that connects to the satellite in the sky and also a diesel generator. So again, they can operate completely independently even if the terrestrial network is down. And so on the New South Wales South Coast, again, Batemans Bay, Malua Bay, the Roadmaster trucks were sent in as quickly as the uh, state emergency authorities um, allowed them to have access. And that's been a very useful service because it means that people can come up to the truck, they can stand within um, 10 or 20 metres, they've got Wi-Fi connectivity from their handset. And so if the mobile network is down, they're in a position to be um, uh, using um, over-the-top services like uh, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger um, or, or any of the many other services to be um, connecting to friends and family, to get internet access, do all the things that you need to do um, as you um, deal with being in an area that's affected by, uh, uh, by, uh, by bushfires. Exactly. And, and to be honest, I don't think that that received really as much uh, positive coverage as it should have, because it was one of those really great things to see, you know, happen to, uh, for evacuees to get, you know, internet access back. Because I think for most people, just reporting to people that, you know, to friends and family that they were okay was was extremely critical in that situation. I think it's enormously important. And the fact is, we're all used to having connectivity wherever we are. And in a situation where you've got um, a loss of coverage, that is challenging for people. And we saw some of the knock-on effects of it, certainly on the south coast of New South Wales and other areas as well, when a loss of mobile coverage also meant that FPOS networks went down. So uh, service stations, supermarkets, if the mobile network went down, then the FPOS service didn't operate. You know, we're all very used now to bu buying things, paying for things by pulling out our card and waving it in front of the, the reader, um, and that's very convenient, but um, it does depend upon the underlying communications network. Now, um, one of the things I have asked NBN to look at, and I asked all of the telco CEOs to have a look at is, are there ways we could provide greater redundancy to businesses, be it a service station, be it a supermarket, be it a pharmacy, so that if the mobile network is not operating, you could potentially use the satellite network so that your FPOS service keeps working. Um, those are some of the things that we're looking at uh, in terms of the lessons learned from this year's severe bushfire season and um, what the impacts it, has, it had upon 
um, the communications network. And look, everyone everyone would know this that you know the NBN does cop quite a bit of flack, probably on a daily basis around whether it's our rankings globally or or something else. Do you do you think that when we think about this? This whole ranking that we have um, on global internet speeds—do you think they are fair comparisons to make? There are some very significant methodological problems with a lot of the surveys that get cited, surveys that purportedly show um, average broadband speeds in a whole range of countries. Uh, for one thing, they are based upon whoever chooses to uh, respond um, and the sample size of the. Uh, of the particular survey um, company um, and in particular a lot of countries are ones where in a lot of countries only a small proportion of people typically wealthy people have fixed broadband coverage and so that's a very different approach to the NBN which is about providing broadband ubiquitously to everybody in Australia who wants it that was the, the clear design philosophy behind the NBN it's about um, equitable access to broadband and so that's a big challenge in a country of 7.7 <laughs> 7 million square kilometres and only 25 million people and yet we sometimes get people who don't understand the complexities uh, pointing to a report that shows that apparently broadband speeds in Australia are not as good as in Kenya. Well when you dig into the numbers uh, in Kenya there's, there's a couple of hundred thousand people in total who have a fixed broadband service. In part that's because in a lot of African countries we've seen what's called the leapfrogging of technology. So mobile um, has come along at a time when these countries have not had much of a fixed line infrastructure at all and people rely very heavily on mobile. But long-winded way of saying some of these comparisons um, they're methodologically not at all robust. I think a better thing to look at is essentially how, first of all, average speeds in Australia have improved very significantly over the last 10 years. We've now got two thirds of people on the NBN taking a 50 megabit per second or higher plan. But it's also interesting to look at the amount of data that people are downloading each month. The latest numbers across the NBN, across the fixed network and the fixed wireless network, it's about 255 gigabytes a month that people are downloading. Now compare that to 10 years ago when the average number across the fixed line network in Australia was 11 gigabytes a month. So we've gone from 11 to 255 in 10 years. That's happened only because of the capacity that NBN has brought. And of course it's because we're all watching huge amounts of video content over the internet. Um, none of that though would have been possible or wouldn't have been possible on anything like the scale that we've seen if it were not for the uh, extent of the NBN rollout. Agreed. And I, and I don't think anyone could ever deny that there is significant progress at least being made, whether people agree with the rankings or not. It, it is improving for sure. And, you know, the, the other thing that we tend to wonder is, you know, if the NBN potentially didn't exist at this stage and we were broaching it for the first time today. Do you think we would still take this multimodal approach to delivering uh, you know, a better experience for, for Australia? Well, look, I've been very clear in my time as communications minister, as have my predecessors, Mitch Firefield and Malcolm Turnbull, that uh, if we had uh, been making the decisions at the time the NBN was designed, uh, in the words of the old Irish joke that Malcolm used to quote quite a lot when somebody in Ireland asks, how do I get to Dublin? The answer is, well, I wouldn't be starting from here. You know, we would not have started from the point that uh, the then Labor government started from. I mean, I'll give you one example that 
we had in 2007-2010 uh, substantial numbers of people in our five biggest cities receiving broadband over the HFC networks and they were much better placed than everybody else. Now Labor's original plan was to completely overbuild the HFC networks, extremely wasteful when those networks were um, only 15 to 20 years old. We managed to modify that, uh, and this was work that Malcolm Turnbull did when he was Communications Minister, so that NBN Co could reuse the HFC networks, and in, in the result they've chosen to reuse the Telstra network. Of course it gets upgraded significantly, and in particular much better upload speeds when the HFC network gets modified to become part of the NBN. But the key point is um, the, original, the, the original plan was dreamt up very, very quickly uh, in a highly political process after Labor's first plan, which was, I remind you, for a 12 megabit per second fibre to the node where the plan was that Telstra would deliver most of it. That plan fell apart because they couldn't deliver on it. And very quickly, in 2009, they rushed to come up with a new plan. Part of, as a consequence of that, it was, um, as is well known, designed on the back of a beer coaster. Uh, very, very expensive. And why should Australians care about how much it costs? Well, first of all, because as taxpayers we're footing the bill for it. But secondly, because of the way retail prices are set and wholesale prices by the regulator, um, they're referable to the amount of capital spent. And so our plan, the multi-technology mix that we moved to after we came to government in 2013, means that not only is the network getting rolled out more quickly than Labor's plan, but it's also costing, uh, four years more quickly in fact, it's also costing about $30 billion less. That means less burden on the taxpayer and lower prices paid by end users. And, and one of the interesting parts that we often hear as well, and, I'm, and I'm, I don't want to continue looking back on, on the NBN, I'd rather look forward, and um, some say that once the NBN is finished that we're going to be stuck with some some old technology still in the system. Um, but from my understanding, that, that last mile could still evolve in the future and, and receive further upgrades. How do you, how do you see an NBN phase two um, sort of coming in the future? Look, it's, it's an important point because if there's one thing we know from the history of telecommunications, and certainly this has been my observation in uh, 20 plus years working in and around this sector, it's not an original observation, networks evolve, networks upgrade, technology moves on. Just look at mobile. Yeah. You know, 30 years ago it was analog amps. Um, then we had this newfangled digital thing, GSM, which came along in, about in the early 90s and the three uh, mobile licenses were issued to Telstra, Optus and Vodafone at that point. You know, then uh, early to mid-2000s, we had 3G, and Hutchison entered the market. They were going to, uh, they, were the, they sort of brought 3G into the Australian market. The other uh, carriers responded very quickly. Then uh, another 10 years later or so, 4G, and now, of course, 5G. Extraordinary changes in technology. Similarly, fixed line, we've seen extraordinary evolutions in the technology. And if you look at the NBN as it stands now, we do have a mix of technologies uh, that are being used to deliver services. Uh, so the network certainly in large scale rollout and a mix of technologies being used to deliver that. We've got uh, fibre to the premises, fibre to the node, but also very importantly fibre to the curb, which is a technology NBN has been uh, making more and more use of. And so that's where the fibre optic goes to within um, you know, 10, 20, 30 metres of the home 
as opposed to the original fibre of the node design. Um, and that gives you correspondingly higher speed potential. Um, and we're at a point when, when the rollout's complete, um, uh, you know, over 50% of the network as it stands when the rollout's complete will be capable of an upgrade to one gigabit per second uh, with a relatively modest upgrade. But the point is that the point is that you know the network is not fixed. What's occurred is the pushing of fibre much much deeper into the network. So for quite a number of homes, fibre now goes all the way to the home. For other homes, it goes to within twenty or thirty metres. For others, it's a few hundred metres. But it's a step change from what it what where the network stood even a few years ago when what most people had was copper running from their home to an exchange, which could have been five, six, seven, or 10 kilometers away. I agree, and, and, I, and I'm one of the lucky ones, I guess, who's got fiber to the home here. And, and you mentioned that in the, in the future, we'd potentially see gigabit. Do you, do you foresee a, a, a stake in the ground as to when some homes could be able to receive those kind of speeds? Well, I'd certainly point people to the um, latest round of NBN wholesale prices and packages, which will come into the market later this year following uh, consultations done last year. Um, and there will be, I think, some significant uh, increase in take up of speeds higher than 100 megabits per second, so 250 megabit per second plans, for example, um, reflecting some of the evolution of pricing. You know, a couple of years ago, um, NBN significantly changed their pricing uh, in relation to the 25 and the 100 tiers, I'm sorry, the 50 and the 100 tiers, particularly the 50, and that led to quite a shift in the market. And we're now at a point where more than two-thirds of customers take a 50 or 100 plan, or 50 and above. Um, so uh, this is as much a, a pricing issue as it is a technology issue. And so I think as these new wholesale plans come into the market, um, we're going to see some significant changes in what um, RSPs start to uh, push into the market and what consumers start to take up. And switching gears to 5G now, you know, we are seeing that start to roll out, uh, whether it's being used for mobile or in-home internet. Uh, but a lot of people still draw comparisons to the NBN as as either you know, having one or the other uh, for your home. How do you sort of see that evolving in terms of the NBN and 5G coexisting? Well, the first thing I'd say is we welcome competition. We welcome the fact that NBN will be facing competition from 5G providers, as indeed it presently faces competition from 4G, and it also faces competition from other um, fixed-line providers in some specific geographies. Um, uh, and competition is very important to drive innovation, to keep downward pressure on prices, um, and to deliver the best services to consumers. Now NBN's business case assumes that 25% or more of premises will not take up the NBN. And um, that's, you know, a share of the market that is uh, likely to go, well certainly is with, uh, in many cases of, with 4G at the moment, is likely to go to 5G. The, the second thing to say though is that in many ways the technologies are complementary. They've got different strengths. Fixed, fixed networks will always do better 
at carrying large volumes of data for a given price point compared to mobile. And we can see that in um, ABS data, Australian Bureau of Statistics data, which shows that more than 90% of data downloaded by Australians is downloaded over fixed networks. And that reflects the fact that ultimately it's cheaper. I mean, if you compare the price points of data plans on mobile and what you get, uh, whether there are download limits, typically there are on mobile data plans, typically there aren't on fixed data plans over the NBN. And that in turn reflects the underlying economics of building and operating mobile as opposed to fixed networks. Now, that, that differential doesn't change with 5G. 5G certainly uh, is a step change in the speed that can be delivered over a mobile network and a step change on other important dimensions like device density, the number of devices that can be supported by an individual base station, and indeed latency, which will be very, very important. Uh, uh, latency will be much lower over a 5G network. That's the time taken for the signal to go from the handset into the network to be processed and come back. And for things like um, vehicle uh, to vehicle and, and vehicle to network communications, driverless cars, those kinds of things, that's going to be critically important. Indeed, uh, the chief executive of Coda Wireless, the uh, South Australian-based company that's um, you know, a player with a, a growing global presence in the market of vehicle-to-vehicle vehicle, uh, vehicle communications, he was speaking uh, before the... Um, the parliamentary inquiry into 5G yesterday, and he made the point that 5G will really be critical for that sector. Long-winded way of saying, um, 5G networks and NBN uh, fixed broadband network each have their respective strengths, they're complementary technologies, and it's important that we're progressing as quickly as possible with both of them. You know, we always have our health concerns, and one of the things that I learned from doing talkback radio uh, around technology is the amount of calls that I would receive around people with health concerns around 5G. And telcos have released statements. Um, Dr. Carl has come out and addressed it as well, whether it's around the radiation or the, the EME concerns. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts in this space? Well, it's important for Australians to understand that, firstly, um, we have very rigorous safety standards. In Australia, they are set by ARPANSA, the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, and they draw on the world's best science. They uh, coordinate very closely with the global bodies in this area. And so we have rigorous safety standards for emissions of RF EME, radio frequency electromagnetic energy, rigorous safety standards that apply to how much uh, energy is being emitted from base stations, uh, from mobile handsets, um, and uh, all the other components of mobile communications networks. That's been true for 2G, for 3G, for 4G, and it's true for 5G. It's also important to understand that um, this is an area that has been very extensively studied for 30 plus years, an enormous number of medical and scientific studies, and no proven health effects have ever been found from mobile communications. But certainly the government recognises that Australians want to be uh, sure that as we move to a new technology in 5G um, that it is safe. Uh, all of the advice we have is very clear on that point, but we've recently announced a further $9 million of funding for research and public communications into these issues, particularly to make sure that our Panza um, is able to access and to do uh, the relevant scientific research uh, in this area. Uh, I'd also make the point that fundamentally, while 5G um, 
uh, has some different network characteristics. It's, it's fundamentally um, operating in the same way as earlier generations of mobile technology um, when it comes to weighing up the, the health and safety issues. But I'd, I'd, I would point out that there are some features which assist in, uh, in mitigating uh, risk. One of the factors is the amount of energy that's emitted from um, a handset. Uh, um, another factor is the amount of energy that's emitted from base stations. Now, 5G technology is more targeted in where signals are sent, and that means that um, if the signal doesn't need to go somewhere, it doesn't go there. It's, uh, so by being more targeted than earlier generations, uh, you reduce the areas, the physical areas where signals are actually going. But, but I'd, I'd close with the fundamental point. When you look at the rigorous safety standards that we apply in Australia, and then when you look at actual uh, emissions levels, energy levels, coming from the 5G network, they're below the safety standards typically by a factor of 100, sometimes 1,000. I've had the chance to get detailed briefings on this. Um, I've seen with my own eyes um, meters being applied to test the emissions levels coming from 5G handsets, 5G base stations. Um, and you know, one thing that stuck uh, in my mind was seeing that the emissions levels from a 5G handset are well below the emissions levels coming from the microwave level in your uh, microwave uh, oven in your kitchen or a baby monitor. Um, so I think Australians can, can have a degree of confidence um, that on all of the latest expert scientific advice, um, the uh, 5G is safe. And look, I, I need to go back to 2018 here, around uh, August, when when Mitch Fifield and Scott Morrison, you know, issued the statement to exclude Huawei from providing equipment for the future 5G network. And it's been really interesting that we've had a bit of an endless to and fro from from Huawei, you know, as an organisation claiming innocence. And some countries have started to use their infrastructure, while some have also put further bans in place as well. My question here is that if the decision from the government at the time was based on evidence, would they ever actually release that so the debate is really over once and for all? The simple point I would make, Jeff, is that the Australian government has announced our position on this matter. It's not a position that's targeted at uh, any one country or any one vendor. Um, it is a position that goes to the... Uh, legal provisions contained um, in uh, the legislative framework under which the telcos operate in Australia um, as to um, advice that can be provided to them by our security agencies um, in relation to their network equipment. So we've got a well-established framework. It's been legislated through our democratically elected parliament. Um, our position is well established. It was thoroughly considered and ventilated at the time, and um, that's been established and our position uh, won't be changing. And I've got a, a few questions left. They're very much quick fire type questions that I ask everybody that I interview. Um, what is your favorite app to keep you organized? Um, I'd probably point to Google Docs and just the convenience of being able to start, you know, if I'm writing an op-ed um, or a speech, to be able to do that sitting on my iPad on a plane, then um, uh, being able to share that with people in my office when I 
go to a computer anywhere around the country or indeed in a hotel, I can then get access again um, to the latest version of the document. So that's one of many ways in which you know, technology is, uh, um, uh, is, is, is enormously convenient. I suppose another favourite app for me, I don't know whether you call it a productivity app, but um, yep. um, uh, just looking at my, my, uh, my iPhone here, um, so TripView is the app that I use to, um, as do you know, millions of other Australians, uh, in my case to check the time of uh, uh, the next train going from Linfield into the city. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's just very convenient to have that updated information. And your favourite social media app? Um, my favourite uh, social media app, I'd probably point to LinkedIn. Um, mine, you know, my electorate, Bradfield, um, yeah, a lot of my constituents are managerial or professional people, so they're big users of LinkedIn. Uh, a lot of the people I deal with in my portfolio responsibilities are, uh, um, it's just very, very convenient to be able to um, check, uh, A, people's, you know, a bit about who people are, and secondly, a little bit about um, uh, what they might have said most recently. Um, and I find it, a, you know, an efficient way to communicate with people as well. Now, if you've got five minutes to spare yes. between meetings, what's the first thing you do on your phone? Uh, what's the first thing I do? I probably check messages. So, um, you know, I start with um, SMS or iMessage, then I check WhatsApp. Um, then I probably next check uh, my email inbox. Um, and like a lot of people, I've got several different ones of them. Um, it does remind, it, every time I do that, I think to myself, well, you know, uh, 20 years ago, um, when I was working in the telco sector, there was a lot of hype about unified messaging and how it was all gonna come into one place. Uh, anybody who's got that solution, I'd say to them, yeah, please bring it forward as quickly as possible. We're all still waiting on that one. Yeah. Now, now, do you wear a smartwatch or do you still keep with a traditional timepiece? Uh, I've got a Garmin, um, so uh, um, and that has you know connectivity to uh, to my phone. Um, but uh, I mainly use it to keep me honest as to whether I've been to the gym or not. And uh, on, a, on an aeroplane, do you use the in-flight entertainment system or bring your own tablet? Um, I tend not to use the in-flight entertainment system. I'll bring a tablet and I normally use that as an opportunity to catch up on reading books, you know, those historical artifacts that I'm quite fond of. Um, so I have, I use Kindle on my iPad, but I just find it, uh, you know, to have an uninterrupted, if it's an hour on a domestic flight or it might be, you know, a few hours if I'm heading over to Perth or up to the Northern Territory or if it's a national flight, the chance to actually sit down and read um, a book uh, is a great luxury. So um, actually probably it's, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily call it a productivity app, but Kindle would be um, right up there in terms of my favourite apps. Um, I don't have a separate Kindle device. I use Kindle for iPad, which I find works extremely well. Yeah, and look, and that was going to be my next question as to what you love to do to disconnect. But I was, I would assume that it's reading. Certainly, reading, um, particularly historic history, uh, biography, uh, economics. So you know, fa a favourite book last year, Hans Rosling, Factfulness. Um, another great book, Matt Ridley, The Rational Optimist. All l looking at the data that shows that. Um, 
you know, will, uh, uh, poverty has reduced, diseases have reduced, violent deaths have reduced. We can't be complacent, but um, the data um, does allow some grounds for, in the phrase, rational optimism. I like to get out into uh, the bush. Um, my electorate, Bradfield, uh, is fortunate to have some terrific national parks. Um, and um, so to be able to get out and walk, you know, one of the wonderful things about the Upper North Shore is you're only 10 or 20 minutes away from bush. Um, I've got a kayak, so I like to go down to uh, Middle Harbour in the Roseville Bridge or Bobbin Head, which is in my electorate, but is a wonderful and a wonderful spot and uh, stick the kayak in the water and spend an hour or two. It's amazing how quickly you can get into, um, you know, relatively um, uh, an area where there's no evidence of human civilization. It is bliss sometimes. And look, my, my last question, uh, this, this podcast is called Technology Uncorked. Generally, uh, when I'm doing the podcast, I'm doing it with a glass of wine. Um, what is your favorite go-to drop? What, what, is, what is what you turn to in a glass? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, I'm having a dry February, which I have done most years just to reassure myself that, um, you know, I can go a month without drinking. Um, but look, I'm very much, I went to uni in the 1980s, so I'm a big, uh, very partial to Chardonnay. Um, and, um, you know, probably a, a Hunter Valley Chardonnay would be, would be a favourite. Um, you know, the joke at uni in the 1980s was the height of sophistication was a Chardonnay and Chardonnay party. Now, most people have forgotten Chardonnay, but um, Chardonnay has uh, kept going strong. And so that would be my favourite. Um, probably my second favourite would be Sauvignon Blanc. Shaw and Smith Sauvignon Blanc would be, uh, would be number two. But um, in terms of uh, Chardonnays, you know, Scarborough or um, uh, Rosemont um, um, or um, Lewin Estate or, uh, I mean, that's WA, but... Um, um, Mornington, uh, Mornington Peninsula, or Yarra Valley, um, yeah. So definitely, um, Chardonnay is my uh, my preferred tipple. Lovely, and I love that they're Australian wines as well. So that's great. Absolutely, and world class, world class. Yeah, yeah. M Minister, thank you so much for your time. I know we've gone probably well over the no allocated time. Really enjoyed the chat, mate. Thank you so much. Good on you. All right, thanks, Jeff. Ta.